With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now... On with the show.
good, boys and girls, two for the podcast. Today is July 24th. It is Monday, obviously. Hope you all had a nice weekend. Didn't do anything too foolish. Today is obviously a nostalgia day, of course. But before we do that, we need to talk about major breaking news. The Saudi Arabian Pro League is taking over the world. And we might as well just accept it now that this is even bigger than we thought it was going to be. We have news today that Al-Halal have offered Paris Saint-Germain 300 million euro to buy Kylian Mbappe, who has one year left on his contract. Not only that, they have offered Mbappe 13.4 million euros per week. Per week. That works out at roughly 696 million euro a year. Not only that, it's a one-year contract. So they're willing to sink one billion give or take a couple of million, into one year of killing Mbappe in their league, at which point he would be free to leave and join Real Madrid on a free, which is probably his plan anyway. I think everybody believes that he has already got an agreement in place with Real Madrid to join them next summer upon the expiry of his Paris Saint-Germain contract. I think it's quite clear that PSG believe that as well. Hence, they have banished him from their first-team squad, and he is currently training with the players that have been deemed unwanted. Ginny Wijnaldum, Leandro Paredes, um, Abdou Diallo, and Colin Dagba, I believe, are the others among that group who are training together. Folks, if they get Mbappe, even if it's only for a year, then nobody is safe. What would stop them turning around and offering 500 million to Manchester City for Erling Haaland, paying Haaland the same type of money, and then saying to him, you're free to leave after a year? And what if they did this every summer? One massive superstar every summer for players if it's only one year to secure that level of wealth I could see it being appealing now a lot of people are immediately saying oh well Mbappe won't do that why wouldn't he why do you think he stayed at PSG so long money PSG are paying him a million quid a week they gave him a hundred million as a signing bonus on his last contract. Why wouldn't he be willing to take another big bag of money? He's already spent a good chunk of his career in a place that is, well, at a club that is the face of a sports-washing agenda. You see, Kylian Mbappe and Neymar were signed by PSG because the Qataris wanted them as the faces 
of the Qatar World Cup in 2022. The whole purpose of signing those players was not to elevate PSG to win Champions Leagues. It was to put well-known faces on a Qatari project and say, look how much bigger and better we can do things. And the whole purpose of this Saudi Pro League experiment is because the Saudis are attempting to get a World Cup of their own. The whole intention of it is to secure a World Cup and not come under the same scrutiny that Qatar did, to be seen as a more... What's the word? A, A more legitimate host of a World Cup. So initially, they were looking at bidding for the 2030 World Cup, them, Egypt, and Greece, in a very, very strange um, three-continent type of thing. That bid has been abandoned. We've got two active bids for that World Cup, Uruguay, Argentina, Paraguay, and Chile. That's one. Spain, Portugal, and Morocco is the other. Now, my preference on that would be the South American bit. Even though generally we do see Europe, not Europe, Europe, not Europe. And we're now seeing back-to-back World Cups in Qatar and the US, Mexico and Canada. So that's back-to-back non-European bids. So logic would say it will come back to Europe in 2030. But my preference would definitely be to see Uruguay, Argentina, Paraguay, and Chile. I think that would be very fun. Um, but either <clears throat> either would be great. In 2024, this is where the Saudis are interested in getting the World Cup for themselves. Now, at the moment, there are a number of different expressions of interest. Egypt, Nigeria... Zimbabwe, who, let's be realistic, aren't going to get a World Cup. Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, again, let's be realistic, they're not getting a World Cup. Australia, New Zealand, and Indonesia is an interesting one. I have a feeling that bid might lose Indonesia in time. It might just be Australia and New Zealand that make that bid together. Obviously, currently hosting the Women's World Cup. They have the infrastructure. They have the stadiums because they have huge rugby stadiums and huge AFL stadiums and decent-sized football stadiums as well. So that's definitely one I think is possible. Then there's the Saudis. India. I I don't think India will stick around for the entirety of that bidding process. China is a possibility. They certainly have the stadiums. They have the infrastructure. Now, the interest in football has waned there somewhat in recent years, largely because of a lack of funding, but it's worth certainly considering. And then the Association of Southeast Asian Nations have put together this idea of a World Cup being hosted amongst a number of different countries uh, in Southeast Asia. So you'd have Singapore, you'd have... I. Thailand, I believe the Philippines, I think Indonesia are initially part of that bid as well. 
Um, and we could see others join it. We could see Cambodia. We could see Vietnam. We could see potentially Laos. Um, but we'll we'll wait and see what takes place there. Um, I think as things stand, the Saudis and Australia and New Zealand would be considered the two strongest options for the 2034 World Cup. But whoever doesn't get 2030 might also make themselves an option for 2034. And they're right now stronger options than either of these, I think. I could be wrong. Australia and New Zealand is a pretty strong option. But the Saudis definitely want a World Cup. There's no doubt there. They want to bring the World Cup to their nation. They've seen Qatar do it. And I think they feel they can do it better. There's always going to be huge competition between those countries. But they know the criticism that the Qataris came in for. And I think the league bringing over big names, putting well-known faces on the posters of the World Cup and maybe showing a greater tolerance towards things for which they previously have been intolerant might also be a factor here. Because as we saw with Qatar, a lot of the things that were criticised during the World Cup were the specific rules regarding alcohol, regarding LGBTQ and things like that. So all things considered, it's very clear what the Saudis are doing. It's very clear that come 2034, the current crop of players who are megastars in general won't be around, but there's a chance that Mbappe still will be around. And if they can establish a relationship with him now, get one year out of him, then what's to say he doesn't go to Real Madrid for four or five years and then come back and again be the poster boy? He's 24 now. We're talking about a World Cup that's 11 years away. He'd only be 35 by the time that World Cup comes around. Chances are he's still playing, maybe not at the elite, elite level that he's at now, but certainly at a good enough level where he'll still be involved in the French squad if he wants to be, which is ludicrous to think, considering he already has 70 caps. This guy legitimately could get 200 caps, like Cristiano levels of caps, and I think he's a, a, a decent bet to break Cristiano's record for most goals in international football as well. So if the Saudis can get him now, get him on board, show him what, what it's like there, then let him go to Real. Well, you've given him a massive bag of money. You've facilitated his dream. Maybe he owes you one down the road and maybe he feel, or maybe he feels like he does and maybe he comes back and again is the face of your World Cup campaign. Wouldn't be the first time he's done it. Right. Um, on to the 2003-2004 Premier League season. So West Ham, West Brom and Sunderland all relegated at the end of the previous season. 
coming into the division. Leicester back after just one year down. Wolves back after 19 years of a gap since their previous sojourn into the top flight. And Portsmouth after a 15-year gap from the top flight. So we're getting some new stadiums now. Leicester still at the Walker Stadium. Wolves at Molyneux, still their home ground to this day. It's a ground that has been modernised. It's a ground that's a good place to go and watch a game. Uh, There are a couple of questionable seats that have a bit of an obstructed view, but all things considered, Molyneux is a good place to go and watch a game. However, the real gem in this season is Fratton Park in Portsmouth. This is a belter of a stadium. This is one of the best places in England to go and watch a game. I genuinely can't recommend enough going to a game in Portsmouth. Now, Portsmouth can be a little bit moody. Their fans can be a little bit rambunctious. The island itself, where Portsmouth is situated, is a little bit different. But Fratton Park is an absolute gem of a stadium. Proper old school, four individual stands, tight, compact, you're close to the pitch, the atmosphere is good. There's not a whole lot of room around it. One side is backed up right against a bunch of houses. One of the ends, there's a narrow lane that separates you from some houses. But it's a really, really good place to go and watch a game of football. Fantastic atmosphere, proper bit of needle, good banter to be had, great local support. Portsmouth fans are incredible. And they've needed to be because of in recent years, their patience, their tolerance has been put really to the test and they have stood up and been counted for their club and they've, they saved their club. Portsmouth fans saved their club. It's a great club. I'd love to see them back in the top flight for now. It's not to be for them, but you know, they're in league one. They were close to the playoff spots. They finished eighth, not really close on points, but they, they gave it a go at the playoff spots last season. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that we'll see them in, in the championship next year. So I do think, regardless of whether you feel they're a Premier League club or not, they're certainly one of those clubs on the bubble, you know, kind of a yo-yo swing club that could be Premier League, could be championship. They're in that kind of group. Um, but yeah, if you do get the chance to go to Fratton Park, genuinely, make sure you do. Make sure you do go to Fratton Park. Portsea Island is a really nice place to just walk around and it's different. Like it's it's got this toughness to it. It's got character. It's got history. You you can almost feel when you're walking down certain streets, you can almost feel the history about it. You can look at houses and you can just kind of imagine different generations of families growing up in those houses and, you know, the the different industry that's there. And it's it's a nice place. It's, it's not for everybody. It's not a, it's not a place where 
you'd maybe go on your holidays, but it's a good place to go and walk around and, and just kind of soak in some of that history and, and get a feel for a real, because on the South coast, there's quite a bit of wealth and certain places, I'm not going to say anywhere in particular, but certain places have an, an air of being well to do. Portsmouth is not one of those places. It has an air of it's it has an air of the north more than anything. Portsmouth feels a bit more like a northern city than a southern city. Until you hear people talk and you realize it's a southern city. But when you're walking around, it has that working class feel, which is really good. Um moving on. Kit manufacturers. Arsenal still have Nike. Aston Villa Diodora. Birmingham Lecoq Sportif, Blackburn Kappa, Bolton Reebok, Charlton Joma, Chelsea Umbro, Everton and Fulham have Puma, Leeds are with Nike, Leicester with Lecoq Sportif, Liverpool and Manchester City with Reebok, so three for Reebok in this season, Manchester United with Nike, Middlesbrough still with Iria, Newcastle have Adidas, Portsmouth are self-making their kits, Pompey Sport, Southampton still self-making their kits with Saints. Um, Spurs are with Kappa and Wolves are with Admirals. So front of shirt, you get 0-2 on the Arsenal shirt. Villa still have Rover. Birmingham have Flybee. I believe they went out of business. Or did they get bought out? I think they might have got bought out. Um, Blackburn have HSA, who I, I don't know who that is. Um... Bolton, Reebok, Charlton, All Sports, Chelsea, Fly Emirates, Everton, Kijian, Fulham, Dabs.com, which was an e-commerce retailer. Uh, it was a subsidiary of the BT Group. It was not at this point. It was later bought by BT, and, and they operated it for 10 years before shutting it down. Leeds, White and McKay, who are a an alcohol-producing company in Glasgow. Leicester, sponsored by Alliance and Leicester. Liverpool by Carlsberg. Manchester City by First Advice. Ars- uh, sorry, United by Vodafone. Middlesbrough by Dilophone. Newcastle by Northern Rock. Portsmouth by Thai, who were an American multinational corporation headquartered in Oakbrook, Illinois. It was founded by Ty Warner, and it used to sell Beanie Babies and such. Um, Southampton Friends, Provident. Spurs, Thompson Holidays. Obviously, they have gone out of business. And Wolves by Doritos. Now, um, just it's an extra little wrinkle. It means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. But I've talked before about that, that rivalry between United and Arsenal. And obviously Nike have both of them now. So Nike are, even though they don't have the most teams, they've got the top teams. So they're at the top of the tree. And we've talked about the fact that you had the rivalries between the players, between Keane and Vieira, Van Nistelrooy and Keown, Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo and Ashley Cole. These rivalries that took place in this time. Gary Neville and Jose Antonio Reyes. The managers couldn't stand each other, Ferguson and Wenger. 
And it's just another funny little wrinkle that's not really relevant in any other way other than the fact that it just kind of speaks to these two teams going head-to-head. Arsenal, sponsored by O2. United, sponsored by Vodafone. So the two big phone companies going toe-to-toe, as it were. Uh, Manager-wise, Graham Taylor resigned as Aston Villa manager, was replaced by David O'Leary, who we'd obviously last seen at Leeds. Uh, Tottenham sacked Glenn Hoddle in September and appointed David Pleece, who stayed till the end of the season. Leeds sacked Peter Reid in November and appointed Eddie Gray. Gordon Strachan resigned as Southampton manager in February and was replaced by Paul Sturk. And then Eddie Gray left Leeds by mutual consent just before the season ended. And or maybe just after the season ended, I'm not 100% certain on the final day date. Uh, yeah, just before the final game of the season. And Kevin Blackwell would eventually take over. So, in this season, there are two teams that are really important. Two teams that need to be focused on. One at the top, one down at the bottom. This is obviously the season where something happens that has never happened since. But it's also, and, and likely won't happen anytime soon, but there's also, it's also the story of something that happened that has happened now since and really does sort of speak to clubs being reckless. Now, We'll come back to it. We'll do transfers first before we get into the details. Um, so in the 03-04 Premier League season, and again, these are not in alphabetical order because why would you start with a club that starts with an A when you can start with Manchester United, who signed a very young, very raw Cristiano Ronaldo. They also signed Luis Saha. They signed Cleverson. They signed Eric Jemba Jemba. They signed Tim Howard. They signed David Bellion. And they signed Fang Zhu Dong, who I don't know that anybody ever saw play. Um, Cleverson was a talented player who'd been part of the Brazil squad or the Brazil team in 02, which won the World Cup. United got him in a year later. And he was talented. Unfortunately, just never really worked out. Uh, Eric Jemba Jemba. United was just a couple of steps too far for him. Decent ball winner, decent midfield player, but just not not a United caliber player. Uh, Tim Howard, there's no doubting Tim Howard's talent. Obviously, he showed at Everton that he was a good goalkeeper. But United at this point are still struggling to try and replace Peter Schmeichel. And we've been through Mark Bosnich didn't work. Massimo Taibbi didn't work. Fabian Bartes didn't work. And now Tim Howard, where they've had that incredible consistency of Schmeichel for seven years or however long he was at the club. Now, in the space of four years, we're on to the fourth new potential first-choice goalkeeper. And it really is a case of 
them trying to find something that's an answer to a problem that they didn't expect to occur. Uh, moving on then. Oh, United also sold David Beckham, which was a huge departure for the Premier League as he went to Real Madrid after the falling out with, with Alex Ferguson, obviously. Um, Arsenal, they signed uh, Jose Antonio Reyes. They signed Philippe Senderos. They signed Jens Lehmann, who was the final piece in the puzzle they managed to nail their replacement for David Seaman. Now, was he an elite-level goalkeeper? No, but he could be very consistent and very reliable. Um, moving on, Newcastle signed Lee Bowyer. They signed Michael Bridges. Chelsea signed... The, now, there's, I, I, I tell a lie. There are three teams who are a story here. And the third one is a team that went from one thing to another in the blink of an eye. So we'll come back to them. We'll come back to them. You'll know who I mean. I'm going to do them last in terms of the transfers. And then they'll be the first team we'll talk about. So Liverpool signed Harry Kuehl, Steve Finnan, Darren Potter, Carl Mediani. Blackburn signed Barry Ferguson, Stephen Reid, Brett Emerton, Lorenzo Amoruso, John Steed, Vratislav Gresko, and Peter Enkelman. They also signed Michael Gray on a free. Everton signed Joseph Yobo, James McFadden, Kevin Kilban, Nigel Martin, Ian Turner, and brought Francis Jeffers back on loan from Arsenal. Southampton signed Kevin Phillips, Neil McCann, Paul Smith, Dexter Blackstock, Fitz Hall, Johan Folly, Darren Kenton, and Stephen Craney. Manchester City signed Claudio Reyna. They signed Trevor Sinclair, David James, Paul Bosfeldt, Antoine Siberski. Sibierski. Uh Daniel Van Boyten came in on loan. Looked like he'd never played football before at times, and then obviously went on and had himself quite a good career. Um, who else have we got? Spurs. Jermaine Defoe. Helder Postiga. Freddie Canute. Mabisela. I don't remember him. Bobby Zamora, so they signed four strikers that summer. Defoe, Postiga, Konate, and Zamora. Interesting um, plan of attack. Michael Brown arrived from Sheffield United. He stayed there a little bit too long. Uh, Paul Kincheski came in on loan from Charlton. And Stefan Dalmat arrived on loan from Inter Milan. Middlesbrough signed Malcolm Christie. They signed Gaika Mendieta, who I loved, Ricardinho, and Deriva. Charlton signed Matt Holland, Jerome Thomas, Chris Perry, <clears throat> Pelo De Canio, who I'd forgotten played for Charlton, uh, Stephen Hughes, and Sergio Liete. Birmingham signed David Dunn. Remember I spoke about Blackburn having those three really talented young players? Well, that's one of them out the door. 
and he didn't go on to great heights with Birmingham. Luciano Figueroa. Mike Taylor was a solid, solid goalkeeper. Uh, Martin Taylor was a decent centre-back. Mikel Forcell in on loan. Neil Kilkenny, youngster brought in from Arsenal. Um, Jeff Horsfield, Paul Devlin and Michael Johnson were among their departures. Fulham signed Collins John, Ian Pearce, Maurice Vols, Brian McBride and Mark Pembridge. Mark Pembridge was around a long time. They also signed uh, an ageing Mark Crossley. Leeds signed Rocky Jr. on loan, Jody Morris on a free and a couple of other frees. And we will be talking about them. Aston Villa, Gavin McCann, Thomas Sorensen, Alberto Solano. Fairly quiet summer for Villa. Uh, Bolton, Florent Lavelle, Steve Howie, Donovan Ricketts, Kevin Davies, Emerson Tome, Ivan Campo, Jardel, Ibrahim Ba. Nuts. One notable departure, a very young Jonathan Walters for 75 grand. Uh, Pompey signed Yakubu, brought Yakubu to the Premier League. He would obviously go on and score a bunch of goals in the league. Dejan Stefanovic, Amdi Fay, Ayl Berkovic, Evika Morner, Richard Duffy. Now, Dejan Stefanovic, if his name sounds familiar to you, when we were doing our nostalgia pod for the 95-96 season, you'll remember I said Sheffield Wednesday signed two Serbian players from Red Star Belgrade. One was Darko Kovacic, who went on and had a very good run with Real Sociedad. And the other was this guy. Dejan Stefanovic. Now, he stayed with Wednesday longer. Uh, didn't have a whole lot more, much more success there, but did stay longer. Went to Vietas Arnhem, did quite well. Came back to England with Pompey and was actually really good. Was actually really, really good. So, fair play to him. Um, Leicester signed Ben Thatcher, Peter Canero, Lee Morris and Alan Sheehan. Wolves signed Carl Court. Silas, Henry Kamara, Jody Craddock, Paul Jones, Oleg Lushny on a free from Arsenal, Stefan Iverson on a free from Tottenham, Hassan Kashlul from Aston Villa on loan. Um, funnily, I see no mention of Mustafa Haji, who he generally just followed around. Um, and the last club then to go to is a club who... What happened to them at that at this point is kind of apt considering what we're seeing take place in Saudi Arabia. In the 0203 season, Chelsea finished fourth, beat Liverpool out for fourth, and Roman Abramovich bought the club. And no one knew who Roman Abramovich was. No one had a clue. He was this wealthy but intensely private Russian billionaire with more money than he knew what to do with, who decided he wanted to buy a football club. 
and he wanted to play football manager for real. And what Chelsea did in this summer is still to this day stunning. It, we've seen clubs spend more, but that's more recently when everyone spends more. At the time, no one had done what Chelsea were about to do. No one had spent this type of money in one summer. Now, we've seen Todd Bowley do a similar thing, um, not as well as this, but... Well, to be fair, when you look at the names, about the same. <laughs> Todd Bowley did about the same. So, Claudio Ranieri is still manager. They sign Hernan Crespo from Inter Milan. They signed Damien Duff from Blackburn. So there's the second of Blackburn's big two gone out. And I think by this point, Janssen has had the accent. So Blackburn, having had those three exciting players now, don't have any of them. Uh, they sent Juan Sebastian Veron from Manchester United. They signed Claude Makaleli from Real Madrid. They signed Adrian Mutu from Parma. Scott Parker from Charlton. Wayne Bridge from Southampton. Jeremy from Real Madrid, Joe Cole from West Ham, Glenn Johnson from West Ham, Alexi Smerton from Bordeaux, largely because, and I shit you not, Abramovich just wanted a Russian player. They signed Jurgen Macho on a free, Neil Sullivan on a free, Alexis Nicholas on a free, Craig Rowcastle on a free, and Marco Ambrosio on a free. There is a world in which Crespo and Mutu arrive in England as a pairing and absolutely tear the league apart because they were phenomenal players. There's a world in which Varane arrives and just everything's built around him and he just dictates games week after week. Unfortunately, this was not to be that world. But at the time, these were such exciting moves. Crespo coming to England. We'd watched him at Parma and at Lazio and at Inter. Mutu, who'd been phenomenal for Parma, coming to England. Veron obviously had been better at United than people had ever given him credit for, but this was seen as a second chance. You know, London team could be built around him. He'd have Makaleli there next to him. This was something that might work, and it ultimately just didn't. And Damien Duff, him going there was <clears throat> was a kick in the arse for Liverpool fans because we'd been linked to them for a couple of years. And just never come up with the cash for him. Um, all things considered, not much of this worked. Duff was very good for a couple of years, but when they really got rolling under uh, Jose, he was there for the the first two titles, I believe, but then they moved him on to Newcastle. McAlealy was a success, but he was 30 when they signed him. Wayne Bridge ended up being a a decent left-back for them, but his most notable thing at Chelsea is the John Terry thing. Uh, Joe Cole, to me, one of the most disappointing English players of the last 30 years, had so much talent and just rarely delivered. You look at his entire time at Chelsea, from then up until he joins Liverpool seven years later, he has maybe two good seasons and none no no great seasons. Uh, Mourinho didn't seem to like him a whole lot. He was forced into playing as a left winger for, 
for times and he should have been a number 10 with the team built around him, but just didn't. Didn't put in the work, it would appear. Um, so yeah, Chelsea are the first team that are so notable from this season because of what they did. The second team that are noticeable or noteworthy, I should say, are Leeds. So in the 1999-2000 season, Leeds United finished third in the Premier League and qualified for the Champions League. And they did that after spending some decent money. They brought in players like Danny Mills, Michael Jubry, Michael Bridges, Darren Huckerby, and Jason Wilcox. At the end of that season, they also landed Olivier Decor, who would go on to prove himself to be a very good Premier League midfielder. Now, the following season, they finished fourth, which, unfortunately for them at the time, meant Europa League, not Champions League. Again, they'd spent money to do so. They brought in Mark Viduka. They brought in Dominic Matteo. During the season, they signed Rio Ferdinand and then Robbie Keane for significant amounts of money. So they're spending very, very heavily here. That's Molly making queer noises behind me there, if anyone's wondering. Um, in the 0102 season, again, they would spend significant amounts of money. Seth Johnson in from Derby, Robbie Fowler in from Liverpool. They would finish fifth and miss out on the Champions League. By now, we have expanded to four teams getting Champions League. And unfortunately for them, they've just missed out. Now, the following season, it's notable that things start to change. They sell Rio Ferdinand, Robbie Keane, Jonathan Woodgate and Robbie Fowler. They lose money on Keane and Fowler, significant money. They make decent money on Ferdinand. They make decent money on Woodgate, but they sell for a total of 52 million. They only spend two and a half on Nick Barmby. So why the change? Well, the problem for Leeds is that after that 99-2000 season, Leeds started to borrow money heavily to fund an attempt to win the league and become a major player again. And they borrowed that money against future earnings. They gambled that they were going to have Champions League football year on year. And what they put up against those loans was future gate receipts. Money coming in the door from ticket sales because their expectation was they would have European Cup football every year. So they'd have those extra games at that premium price. And then they miss out on the Champions League two years in a row. They're one spot outside two years in a row. And that means that their gamble has failed. And now those loans start to get called in, but they don't have the money to meet those loans. And it's not just on players that they spent money. They spent money on 
wages. They spent money on their offices. They spent comical amounts of money on exotic fish. And I'm not lying, exotic fish, you can read it in books. It is a fact. They had about 50 grand worth of exotic fish in their in their offices. Um, they're spending money that they don't have, and they're gambling it on something they're not certain of. This is Peter Ridsdale's big gamble. Now, Ridsdale has tried to absolve himself of any and all blame for what took place, but he is the person primarily responsible for what happened to Leeds United. And we go into this 03-04 season. Now, remember, in 02-03, Leeds finished 15th. So third, fourth, fifth, 15th. O'Leary gone, replaced by Terry Venables. Venables gone, replaced by Peter Reid. In this season, 03-04, Harry Kuehl out, Olivier Decor out, Nigel Martin out. Jody Morris, the only player bought, brought in on free. They loaned in Didier Domi, Lamine Sacco, Rocky Jr., but they couldn't afford to buy anybody. And the season starts off in catastrophic fashion. 13 games in, two wins, two draws, Nine defeats, including a run of five defeats in a row, eight defeats in nine. Then they have a little bit of a run, two wins and three draws out of five. Then they lose six in a row. Then they have another little run where they win four, draw three and lose two of nine. But in the last five games, they lose four and draw one. And they end up 19th. Level on points with the team who finished bottom. Level on points with the team above them. But the goal difference separated them. They finished six points behind the team who finished 17th and stayed in the division. And down they went. And despite the sales that they make, and remember we just talked about some 60 million worth of sales with only about two and a half million worth of players brought in. Leeds dead is at a hundred million. So they've sold off their big ticket items. Ferdinand is gone. Woodgate is gone. Fowler is gone. Keane is gone. Decor is gone. And what's left is the remnants of a squad. Now, just to compare with what they had, let's say in 2000, 2001, when they were playing in the European Cup, goalkeepers, Nigel Martin and Paul Robinson. You had Gary Kelly at right back, Ian Hart at left back. You had Woodgate, Ferdinand and Lucas Radaby, plus Dominic Matteo and Michael Jubry as your centre-backs. You had Danny Mills as a, as a rotation full-back with Gary Kelly. In midfield, you had Decor, you had Bowyer, you had um, Eric Bakke, who was actually a really good player. You had David Batty. In attack, you had Robbie Keane, Michael Bridges, Mark Viduka, Harry Kuehl, Darren Huckerby, and Alan Smith. 
obviously they would add Fowler to that mix as well. By the time this came around, they were in serious trouble. Now, goalkeeper-wise, they were in good shape. They had Paul Robinson, who would become England's number one, and Scott Carson, who played four times for England in the end, had himself a very long career, is at Manchester City now, has won everything there is to win in the game, largely as a backup keeper, it must be said, but he's got multiple league titles and multiple Champions League. So he's gone on and had a good career. So goalkeeper-wise, they're pretty good. But now you've got an aged Gary Kelly, an aged Ian Hart, an aged Lucas Radaby, an aged Dominic Matteo, Michael Jubri off some bad injuries, Didier Domian on loan, Zumana Kamara. Do you know who he is? Wouldn't imagine so. Midfield, you've got Nick Barnby, played six games, one start in the Premier League. Jermaine Pennant in on loan. Stephen McPhail. Jason Wilcox, very, very much past his best at this point. Eric Backe, still there, but now injured all the time. Seth Johnson is starting regularly. David Batty manages 10 starts in the league. Solomon Alembe, remember him? No, I don't either. A, a very, very young James Milner plays 27, sorry, starts 27 Premier League games. And up front, you've got Viduka, Smith, and Lamine Sacco. And all the rest is gone. And the only real sellable assets there, Viduka, who was 28, but frustrating. Paul Robinson. Maybe Seth Johnson, though he was a bit of a disaster there, but he was a good player. He, was, he wasn't worth the $9 million they paid for him. Alan Smith and James Milner are your two really sellable assets. And so when leads go down, Robinson leaves, Smith leaves, Milner leaves, Viduka leaves, Scott Carson leaves, Nicky Barnby goes in a free, Matteo goes in a free, Mills goes in a free, Craig Hignett, who they're still paying, goes in a free, Steve Guppy, that they're still paying, goes in a free. David Batty retired. But all of those players, they got less than 20 million for them. Less than 20 million. Danny Cadamartri, who they paid, I think, four or five million for. I could be wrong about that, but I think they paid millions to Bradford to buy him. Never played for them. They got 50 grand back from Danny Mills. They paid four and a half million for. He left on a free. He was an England international. He was 27. He left on a free because of relegation release clause. Ian Hart went for peanuts. Now, at that point, probably wasn't worth a whole lot. Actually, he was only 27. I was wrong that he was aging. He was was only 27. So he would have had value. But he left for peanuts to go to Levante. They got five million for Milner. One and a half for Robinson. Seven for Smith. These players were their future. These were young players. Alan Smith was 24. Paul Robinson at the time was 25. 
he was England's first choice by the time he left. Milner was, what, 18? Yeah, 18. So they've sold off all their top players. Now they're selling off their future. And they're not even scratching their debt. And they go down and they spend about a million and a half. I'm wrong about Kadamatri. They signed him on a free from Bradford. They signed Julian Jochum on a free, Michael Ricketts on a free, like just Brian Dean on a free. I think he left during the season as well. He did. Um, they, they tried to sign a bunch of players who'd been in the Premier League. They paid significant wages this summer and it was a catastrophe for them. They finished 14th in the Championship. In 05, 06, they did finish fifth. They didn't come up. In 06, 07, they got relegated from the championship to League One. In 07, 08, they finished in the playoff spots in League One, but they didn't come up. 08, 09, they got to the playoffs in in League One, but didn't come up. They finally got promoted back into the championship in 09-10. They finished seventh, missed the playoffs. They finished 14th, missed the playoffs. 13th, missed the playoffs. 15th, missed the playoffs. 15th, missed the playoffs. 13th, missed the playoffs. 7th, missed the playoffs. 13th, missed the playoffs. 3rd in 18-19, got to the playoffs, lost in the semi-final. And it wasn't until 1920 that they came back up. 16 years in the wilderness. 16 years because 20 years beforehand, they gambled on their future for a short-term gain. Rather than building with what they had, they gambled to try and speed up the process. In one of the dumbest moves any club has has ever made like they had a team that had potential in 98-99 they'd finished fourth and their team was pretty strong Nigel Martin Jonathan Woodgate, Lucas Radaby, Ian Hart, Lee Bowyer, Alfinger Haaland, Harry Kuehl, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank, Alan Smith. He could have built on to that. But instead, they just tried to rush things. Tried to put themselves at a level that they just weren't quite ready for that season. or At that point. Got into the Champions League once thought they were on the pig's back and have basically been paying for it ever since because they've just been relegated again because they couldn't get a foothold in the Premier League. they got two seasons. I hope we see them back again soon. They've got new owners now. Radrizani, to his credit, was a very good owner for them, but these new owners now, I think, will, will bring more more calm to the project. Radrizani, for me, 
always felt like he wanted to rush things a little bit. But, I mean, if ever there was a Premier League tale of caution to be told, Leeds are right at the top of the list, the ones you'd tell. Now, another club that's at the top of that list is a club I mentioned earlier who got promoted into this season, which is Portsmouth. And you look what happened there. And it's a similar thing. They spent way beyond their means. They gambled on their future. They put up things as collateral that weren't real. But at the time, everything was booming. Money was flooding into the Premier League more and more each year. And everyone thought, this will never end. This is, this is, this is great. But then you go down and the bubble bursts because those loans get called back in and you don't have anything to stand behind them on. The final team to focus on for this season is, of course, Arsenal. The Invincibles. 26 wins and 12 draws in the Premier League. The only unbeaten campaign that the Premier League has seen. Genuinely sensational. Start off with four wins in a row. Everton, Middlesbrough, Aston Villa and Manchester City are all defeated. They draw with Portsmouth, they draw away with Manchester United in a game that is known as the Battle of Old Trafford. They beat Newcastle, they beat Liverpool, they beat Chelsea, they draw with Charlton. They beat beat Leeds, they beat Tottenham, they beat Birmingham. They draw with Fulham, they draw with Leicester. They beat Blackburn, they draw with Bolton. They beat Wolves, they beat Southampton, they draw with Everton. They rattle off nine straight wins. Middlesbrough, Aston Villa, Manchester City, Wolves, Southampton, Chelsea, Charlton, Blackburn and Bolton, all beat. They draw 1-1 at home with Manchester United. They beat Liverpool. They draw away to Newcastle. They beat Leeds. They draw with Spurs. They draw with Birmingham. They draw with Portsmouth. They beat Fulham. And on the last day of the season, they go 1-0 behind. It's 1-0 at half time, and everyone thinks this is it because they're playing awfully. They're going to lose the unbeaten run on the last day of the season. But Thierry Henry scores a penalty and Patrick Vieira scores the winner and Arsenal finished the season unbeaten. 38 games, 26 wins, 13 draws, zero defeats, 90 points, 73 goals scored, only 26 conceded. So they scored the most and conceded the most, plus 47 goal differences, the best in the league by a country mile. In the same season, they got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup and lost to Manchester United in a game they probably should have won. In the League Cup, they got to the semi-finals and they lost to Middlesbrough over two legs. They lost 1-0 at home and 2-1 away, but they didn't really seem to care. In the Champions League, I know I don't normally do the Champions League, but we might as well, considering the season that's in it. They topped their group, finishing with 10 points from games against Lokomotiv Moscow, Inter Milan, and Dinamo Zagreb. What's most important, uh, impressive with that is they lost two of the first three games, didn't win any of the first three games, and still went on and topped the group. They knocked out Celta Vigo in the round of 16, but were knocked out in the quarterfinals by Chelsea. A very, very late Wayne Bridge goal gave Chelsea a 3-2 win on aggregate. 
Arsenal's team that year, Jens Lehmann was the goalkeeper, Loren at right back, Ashley Cole at left back. In the middle, you had Colo Toure and you had Saul Campbell. That's one of the better defences the Premier League has ever seen. Campbell and Cole are in the discussion as two of the better defenders the league has seen. Loren and Colo were both very, very reliable. And as I said earlier, Jens Lehmann was the final piece of the puzzle. He was the one that just sort of gave them that steadying influence in goal. You had Freddie Lundberg on the right. You had Robert Perez on the left. Their midfield partnership remains one of the best I've ever seen. Gilberto Silva as that holding player who sat in, protected the defence, broke things up and let Patrick Vieira go box to box and just dominate games. And then up front, you had Dennis Burkamp playing off Thierry Henry. It wasn't just those players, though. You had Noanku Kanu, Jeremy Aliadier, and Sylvan Viltord in rotation in attack. You had Jose Antonio Reyes could play either flank. You had Martin Keown in rotation at centre-back. You had Edu in rotation in centre midfield, Pascal Segan in rotation at centre back, Gail Clichy as the backup left back. This was just a very, very strong team. You had a very young, very talented David Bentley breaking through as well. He only made four or five appearances across all competitions that season, but he looked like a guy that was going to be a big part of Arsenal's future. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out just didn't work out. This team were phenomenal. And I don't care about the points total. I don't care about 12 draws. This is the best team the Premier League has seen because this team went unbeaten. And this team went unbeaten at a time where there were other very, very, very good teams in the league. You had a very good Chelsea team that finished second. You had a very good United team that finished third. You had a decent Liverpool team that finished fourth. You had a strong Newcastle that finished fifth. The league table as a total after Newcastle, we go Aston Villa. We go Charlton, Bolton, Fulham, Birmingham, Middlesbrough, Southampton, Portsmouth, Tottenham, Blackburn Rovers, Manchester City, Everton, Leicester, Leeds and Wolves. I just realised I didn't go through the managers. So if you're wondering who the managers this season were, Uh, Arsene Wenger was manager of Arsenal and Patrick Vieira was his captain. David O'Leary was manager of Aston Villa and Olaf Melberg was their captain. Steve Bruce was at Birmingham with Kenny Cunningham as captain. Graham Souness at Blackburn with Gary Flickcroft as captain. Sam Allardyce at Bolton with JJ Okocha as captain. Charlton Athletic with Alan Kerbishley and Matt Holland as captain. Claudio Ranieri at Chelsea with Marcel Desailly as captain. David Moyes at Everton with David Weir as captain. Chris Coleman at Fulham with Lee Clark as captain. Kevin Blackwell at Leeds with Dominic Matteo as captain. Mickey Adams at Leicester with Matt Elliott as captain. Gerard Houllier at Liverpool with Steven Gerrard as captain. Kevin Keegan at Manchester City with Sylvan Distan as captain. Sir Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane obviously at Manchester United. 
Steve McLaren at Middlesbrough, Gareth Southgate was captain. Bobby Robson at Newcastle, Alan Shearer was captain. Harry Redknapp at Portsmouth, Teddy Sheringham was captain. Paul Sturrock at Southampton with Klaus Lundegvum as captain. David Pleas ended the season as Tottenham manager with Jamie Redknapp as his captain. And Dave Jones at Wolves with Paul Ince as his captain. This is a legendary season in Premier League history. It just is. Arsenal won the most games with 26. Leicester won the least with six. Newcastle had the most draws with 17. Manchester United and Spurs had the least draws with six. Leeds lost the most games with 21. And Arsenal obviously lost the least games, losing zero. Arsenal scored the most goals. They conceded the most goals. Wolves scored the fewest goals. And Leeds conceded the most goals. Thierry Henry was top scorer with 30. Alan Shearer had 22. Luis Zaha and Ruud van Nistelrooy both, both scored 20. Mikel Forsell scored 17. Nicholas Anelka, Juan Pablo Angel and Michael Owen in what would be his last season at Liverpool all scored 16, as did Yakubu in his first season in England. James Beattie, Robbie Keane and Robert Perez all had 14. Manager of the month, Arsene Wenger in August. Claudio Ranieri, September, Bobby Robson, October, Sam Allardyce, November, Alex Ferguson, December, Sam Allardyce again in January, uh, Arsene Wenger again in February, Ranieri again in March, and Harry Redknapp in April. No surprise, Arsene Wenger was the manager of the year. Your players of the month, Teddy Sheringham in August, Frank Lampard in September, Alan Shearer in October, JJ Akotcha in November, Paul Scholes December, Thierry Henry in January, Dennis Burkamp and Edu in February, Mikael Forsell in March, and Thierry Henry again in April. Thierry Henry won the Players Player of the Year from the shortlist of Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, JJ Akotcha, Alan Shearer, Patrick Vieira, and himself. PFA Young Player of the Year was won by Scott Parker of Chelsea. From a list of Glenn Johnson, Wayne Rooney, John Terry, Colo Toure, Sean Wright Phillips and himself. Your PFA team of the year, Tim Howard, Loren, Ashley Cole and Saul Campbell all in the team. John Terry in one of the more laughable, one of the more laughable picks of the last 20 years. There's absolutely no world in which John Terry belonged in the team of the year that year. Uh, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Patrick Vieira and Robert Perez all picked as the midfield and Henri and Van Nistelrooy up front. Thierry Henry was also the PFA Fans Player of the Year for the second consecutive time. He also won the Football Writers Player of the Year. Arsenal won the Fair Play Award. Arsenal won the Behaviour of the Public Award, which is basically fans not causing trouble. And Arsene Wenger also took home a double of awards winning Premier League Manager of the Year along with the LMA Manager of the Year. This was a season that was dominated by Arsenal Football Club. Um, The League Cup final, Middlesbrough beat Bolton 2-1 to finally get some silverware. After the horrors and heartbreak they suffered in the 90s, they finally managed to come good. Joseph Desiree Job scored on two minutes. Bolo's ending scored on seven. 
to make Middlesbrough 2-0 leaders. And then Kevin Davies scored on 21. And from there it was, as I remember, a very tight game. But Borough would pull out the victory and finally bring home some silverware to a fan base that was very much deserving of silverware. Their team on the day, Mark Schwarzer, Danny Mills at right back, Frank Boudreau at left back, Ugo Ekiog, Gareth Southgate. It's a strong defence. Gaika Mendieta, George Boatang, Deriva, and Bodewine Zenden in midfield. I love Mendieta. And then Janino, who had come back. I think, was this his third goal at the club or his second? This was his third time at the club. He'd been there from 95 to 97, left when they got relegated, went to Atletico Madrid, came back on loan, then spent some time in Brazil on loan, back to Borough for two years, then went to Celtic for a year, and then went back to Brazil. Uh, I loved Janinho. I, it was just so much fun. Um, and, and job up front. And then you had Brad Jones, Chris Riggett, Stuart Downing, Massimo Macaroni, and Michael Ricketts on the bench. Ricketts came on for job in on 65 minutes. Um, Danny, Mer- Danny Mills was there on loan that year. Danny Mills was in on loan. He was an England international. He'd started for England at the World Cup. And he was on loan at Middlesbrough. And then when Burrow decided not to keep him at the end of the year, he went back to Leeds, still at time on his contract. Leeds continued to pay him, but had to let him leave for free where he joined Man City. Mental. Um, so, yeah, the Bolton team was Yussi Yaskalainen, Nicky Hunt, Bruno Ngotti, Emerson Tome, Simon Charlton, Pear Franson, Ivan Campo, JJ Kocha, Kevin Nolan. Yuri Jorkaev and Kevin Davies. On the bench, Kevin Poole, Anthony Barnes, Stelios, Gianna Coppolis, Henrik Peterson and Moreno. Um, the latter three came on during the game for Nolan, Franson and Hunt. In the FA Cup final that season, Manchester United beat Millwall 3-0. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo scored on 44. Ruben Nistelrooy scored on 65 and 81. Middlesbrough, or Middlesbrough, Millwall were a championship team. So them being in the FA Cup final was a great achievement. And Dennis Wise was their player manager. United's team on the day, Tim Howard, Gary Neville, Wes Brown, Mikel Silvestre, John O'Shea, Cristiano Ronaldo, Darren Fletcher, a very young Darren Fletcher, Roy Keane, Ryan Giggs, and then Paul Scholes playing off. Ruud van Nistelrooy on the bench with Roy Carroll, Phil Neville, Nicky Butt, Eric Jemba Jemba, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. On 84 minutes, United made a triple substitution, and this was roundly criticised because it was seen as a bit of a piss take. So he brought on Butt and Solskjaer for Cristiano and Fletcher, which was fine. But he also brought on Roy Carroll for Tim Howard. And it was just seen as kind of unsporting to change your goalkeeper like that. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, Millwall's team, Andy Marshall, Marvin Elliott, Matt Lawrence, Darren Ward and Robbie Ryan, Paul Eiffel, Dennis Wise, David Livermore, 
Peter Sweeney. And up front, you had Tim Cahill. This was the first we got to know of Tim Cahill, really. He would obviously go on with great success at Everton. And Neil Harris uh, was the other striker. Willie Giroux, or uh, that's what I'm just going to call him. Uh, Alan Dunn, Barry, Co- Barry Cogan, Curtis Weston and Mark McCammon. Cogan, Weston and McCammon came on for Ryan Wise and Harris. And there you go. That is your 2003-2004 season. I believe that Arsenal team are the best team the Premier League has seen because they went unbeaten. And until somebody else does it, I don't want to hear that it's not all that impressive because it's amazing. It's a genuinely amazing achievement. They had an outstanding defence. They had an outstanding midfield. Lumberg, Vieira, Gilberto and Perez is near perfect balance. It's the second best midfield we've seen in the Premier League after the United midfield of Beckham, Keane, Scholes and Giggs. And the front two with Burkamp and Henri was just a dream to watch. Absolutely sensational. Brilliant manager, Arsene Wenger, revolutionised English football. This was his crowning glory. But if you told Arsenal fans on the final day of the season that by the year 2023, they would not have won the title again, I don't think any of them would have believed you. I don't think any of them would have believed you. Uh, I should have pointed out when talking about the stadiums that Manchester City had moved to what we now know as the Etihad, the city of Manchester Stadium, and that Fulham, because Craven Cottage was being renovated, um, played the games at Loftus Road, home of QPR. Southampton also moved into St. Mary's. And that's the only other change. So there you go. A great, great season. But a season in which football changed forever in England because of Chelsea, because of the money. And those changes will become even more prominent in the next season, which we'll talk about tomorrow, I assume. Uh, We'll take a break. When we come back, we're just going to do the gossip and then we'll be done. So I will see you all in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, let's do the gossip. Uh, One quick bit of news for those that saw Shaka Hislop collapsed on live television uh, while working at the Real Madrid-AC Milan game. He is now in a stable condition. Um, I assume the heat had something to do with it. But as things stand, he's conscious, he's talking, and he's, he's good. So, fingers crossed, all is well with Shaka. Um, on to the gossip then. German champions Bayern Munich are interested in Fabinho. That, that's not going to happen. He's gone to Al Itihad. That deal will get confirmed in the next day or two. Bayern are planning a third bid for Harry Kane and are confident of signing the 29-year-old. Carl uh, Walker is keen to talk to Bayern as he considers an exit from Manchester City. Atalanta are unwilling to budge from their £86 million valuation of Rasmus Hoysland, who is a top target for Manchester United. I told you. Paris Saint-Germain are also interested in Hoysland and have started negotiations. I can see them buying him if 
if Mbappe leaves. Crystal Palace are confident that Wilf Zaha will sign a new deal. Well, that's just bad journalism. Uh, Manchester City are pressing Bernardo Silva for an answer on their new £300,000 a week contract offer. Atletico Madrid are set to rival Chelsea for the signing of Elia Wahi from Montpellier. Uh, Wahi does not want to go to Strasbourg on loan if Chelsea sign him. Well, I think that might have changed since. Alex Tellez is on course to complete a four million move to Al Nazir. Nottingham Forest are closing in on signing Ola Aina. I believe that deal is now done. Lazio are in the race with Fulham to sign Callum Hudson Odoi. Tino Livermento is closing in on a move to Newcastle. Liverpool, Paris Saint Germain, and Atletico, Atletico Madrid are interested in Mali midfielder Czech Dukure. I really want Liverpool to sign Czech Dukure. He is my top target now because Chimeni's not realistic. Caicedo's out of the price range. I want Dukure and I want Lavia. Those two, for me, complete Liverpool's midfield. Uh, Liverpool are holding talks with Preston over the sale of Leighton Stewart. That deal did go through over the weekend. Thiago Alcantara is considering a move away from Spain, from Liverpool with his options being Spain, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Uh, we'll wait and see what happens with that one. Uh, Dutch defender Kiana Hoiver and Portuguese winger Chiquinho are on the verge of joining Stoke on loan from Wolves. Two talented players. Hoiver needs to get his head right. Uh, Fiorentina's Brazilian defender Igor is set to complete a medical at Brighton on Monday after the club's agreed a £15 million fee. I think that's a good signing. Again, just clever, clever business from Brighton. Monaco had two bids rejected for Mohamed Salisu and might wait until January when they can discuss a free transfer move. Um, Gremio coach Renato Gaucho says Luis Suarez has been talking to the Brazilian club's president about a possible move to Inter Miami where he would reunite with his former Barcelona teammate Lionel Messi as well as Alba Busquets and potentially Iniesta as well. Uh, moving on, Chelsea and Al Halil have begun the process of trying to sign Kylian, but Chelsea have no chance. Uh, Al Halil have made Mbappe's Mbappe the same offer they made to Messi. They've actually made him a much bigger offer, much much bigger. Mbappe is prepared to sit out a full season and leave PSG after the French champions leave him leaving a free, I should say, next summer after they put him up for sale on Friday. Harry Kane's wife has been spotted in Munich looking for properties and schools. That's interesting, if true. Chelsea have made contact with Ajax to express an interest in Mohamed Kudus. Uh, Jordan Henderson has completed his medical before his 12 million move to Al Etifak. Jurgen Klopp has, been, has promised more signings, yada yada. Uh, Victor Osman's contract negotiations with Napoli remain at a stalemate, opening the door for Chelsea and Manchester. It doesn't really do anything of the sort, to be honest. Inter Milan believe it is now impossible to sign Romelu Lukaku after Belgian Belgian striker approached rivals AC Milan and Juventus about a potential move. Galatasaray have offered Wolf Zaha a deal worth eight million a year. Luis Suarez is willing to pay out of his own pocket to leave Gremio and be reunited with Lionel Messi and into Milan. Manchester City have been told they must meet RB Leipzig's 87 million valuation of Josco Gvardiol. Um, we got the here we go, and it turned out it was here we don't. Um, Crystal Palace are considering a move for Americ Laporte. 
Manchester United are ready to take up the extra year option on Aaron Wan-Bissaka. I mean, he hasn't done well since joining, but he had a good four weeks last season, so you might as well. Uh, Fulham are set to spend more than thirty million on two centre backs with Mohamed Salisu and Calvin Bassi potentially joining. Now, Romano has said today it'll only be one, but we'll we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. They've certainly made bids for both by the sounds of things. So, who knows? Um, Jamaica forward Mikel Antonio is queen is keen to quit West Ham and join Al Etifak this summer. Uh, Al Etifak are signing Musa Dembele, formerly of Fulham. Celtic, Leon, Atletico Madrid on loan, Leon again. So I don't know if they'll want Antonio as well, but we'll wait and see. Ivan Tony is considering changing agents, a sign that he is looking to leave Brentford before his eight-month ban for breaking betting rules ends in January. Manchester United believe a price of 50 to 60 million would be a fair valuation for Rasmus Hoytland, hence why they won't be signing him. Roberto De Zerbi has hinted at a potential swap deal. With Caicedo going to Chelsea and Levi Colwell joining Brent, uh, Brighton, we'll see. I, I I don't see that happening, to be honest. Liverpool are still in contact with Southampton over a deal for Romeo Lavia and are hopeful an agreement can be secured this month. Uh, Southampton have turned down a new approach from Newcastle for Tino Livermento. Ishmael Assar is close to leaving Watford and joining Marseille. I believe he's had his medical today. Marseille are also trying to sign Ilhamen and Jai, uh, his international teammate. So we'll see what happens there. Manchester United are set to announce the double signing of twin brothers Jack and Tyler Fletcher, who are the sons of Darren Fletcher, in a British record deal for 16-year-olds. Um, Really? Interesting. I don't know how good the two lads are. It appears that one of them plays their international football for Scotland and the other plays for England. Is that is that real? Does one of them play for England and one plays for Scotland? That's magnificent if it's true. Tyler Fletcher. So Tyler plays for Scotland. He is a right-footed central midfielder. And does Jack then play for England? Because this is fantastic if it's true. He does. He plays for England. That's fantastic. He's a left-footed central midfielder. That is brilliant that they're playing for different international teams. I really hope they stick at that. Now, I'm sure there's Scottish fans hoping that both of them will end up playing for Scotland, but that's absolutely fantastic. That's made my day. Um, Right, that's all we've got on that day's work. So now we're just down to the final day. Daniel Levy has been told he must sell Harry Kane if he can't persuade him to sign a new contract. News of Tottenham's ultimatum has put Manchester United back on alert. Daniel Levy just will not sell him to United. He will take less to sell him to Bayern. Because he took less to sell Luka Modric to Real than he could have got to sell him to Chelsea. Um, Byron Kane, Byron Kane. Chelsea have made an offer for Michael Elise and the player already has an agreement in principle. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, Chelsea are running out of patience with Romelu Lukaku. Fabinho's 
move to Al Ittihad is at risk of collapse. No, it's not. Uh, Atalanta's Danish striker Rasmus Heusel wants to complete a move to Manchester United. La la la. Wolf Zaha will join Galatasaray in a free transfer. Marco Silva has rejected a 40 million proposal from Al Ali and committed his future to Fulham. Chelsea have, up, have reopened talks with the Saudi Pro League over selling Hakim Ziyech. Callum Hudson Odoi is close to being reunited with his former manager, Mauricio Sarri, at Lazio. However, Fulham are still trying to beat Lazio to the signing of Hudson Odoi. Fulham are willing to pay £7 million for Damari Gray. I think he cost a bit more than that, surely. Fulham have rejected a £50 million bid for Joe Polina. West Ham are confident of securing a deal for Edson Alvarez. Atletico Madrid have contacted PSG about a move for Marco Verratti. Gianluca Scamacca could join Roma if Divock Origi joins West Ham. Why would they do that? That would be a horrible thing to do. That would be a genuinely horrible downgrade for West Ham. Um... Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is attracting interest from Brentford, Besiktas and Saudi Arabia. Usman Dembele has turned down a five million, sorry, five-year deal worth 35 million per season from Al Nazir to stay with Barcelona. Fair play. Borussia Dortmund is the preferred destination for Marcel Sabitzer. I believe that deal is now done. Um, English defender Taylor Moore is close to returning to France after being released by Bristol. He's a really talented player, just never settled when he came back to England. I think he moved to France as a, as a kid. What was the situation? Uh, let's get him up. Taylor Moore. Taylor Moore was born in England, moved to France, I believe, at the age of seven with his parents for work. Came through the Lens Academy, joined Bristol seven years ago, had one, two, three, four, five, six different loans, was very highly regarded at underage level for England. Just it never worked for him when he joined Bristol. Um, Everton and Atalanta are in talks with Almeria over a move for El Balil Toure. Wolves are expected to sell Daniel Pedence after he did not travel with the rest of the squad to pre-season training camp. Nice are planning a move for Ricardo Pereira. If I'm not mistaken, that's where they bought him from, wasn't it? Did they buy him from Nice? Oh, no, he'd been on loan at Nice. He'd been on loan at Nice while owned by Porto and had gone back to Porto, which is where they bought him from. And finally, two clubs from Saudi Arabia are in talks at Manchester United over Eric Bailly. And that is all I have today, folks. Thank you as always. I will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.